Good morning. Uh, and so uh, tomorrow it will officially be four months since I've been commissioned to be one of the pastors here at our church. Now, I don't want to toot my own horn. I really don't. <clears throat> but if I could say so, I'm pretty much an expert at this whole thing at this point, right? Um, now, uh, if there was such a thing as a master pastor, I'm pretty sure that I would qualify. I, don't, I mean, I don't know what the, exactly the qualifications are, but I would think I would qualify. You see, I'm not trying to be arrogant here. It's just that um, being a pastor really isn't just that hard. It's just not that hard. Uh, so first of all, uh, and uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure if I should be sharing this with you, um, but our suspicions were right. So Monday through Saturday, we don't do anything. We just kind of sit around. Uh, we, we throw a baseball around sometimes. It's not a big deal. I come here, we pretend, you know, we kind of do a little thing here and there. But generally speaking, I work about three hours a week on a Sunday from 9 to 12, sometimes uh, 4 if a Jay's preaching that week because he kind of goes long with the sermons. Uh, but besides that, I'm sitting around and I'm doing nothing. Or, uh, and then second of all, uh, you guys, you guys are just a bunch of saints, right? I mean, uh, the toughest thing that I have to deal with is, for example, if some, one of you come up to me and say something like, Pastor, you know, I just feel like I'm praying too much. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Should I be worried? Is that something that is a problem? What should I do? And so I kind of help wipe off the tears from your eyes and kind of pat you on the back and say, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. And I kind of lend you and push you on your way, right? That's it. I, I mean, it just hasn't been that hard. I think the next obvious step for me is to probably write a book. I'm going to write a book at this point, How to Become an Awesome Pastor in Four Months or Less, guaranteed, right? I mean, what else can I do at this point? We don't do much during the week. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, nothing that I said was true. Nothing that I said. Well, he does go a little long sometimes, but besides that, <laughs> nothing that I said was true. Um, what is true is that these last four months have been both wonderful and overwhelming at the same time. I say wonderful because God has truly filled my heart with love for this church. I really do. I, I love you guys. I really do. I love being able to serve this church. I wouldn't want to be doing anything else, and I mean that. I don't want to be doing anything else in life besides serving this church. God has really placed a love in my heart for you. I am so grateful that I am one of your pastors. But at the same time, uh, being a pastor has been overwhelming. And I say overwhelming because there is so much to do. There really is. There's so much to do. And when there's so much to do, sometimes it's hard to know what exactly you should be focusing on at any given point, right? Like, what should I be concentrating on? You see, we're a young church, right? We're just a few years old. And so being a young church comes with a bunch of advantages, as well as a bunch of disadvantages. So one of the advantages is that, you know, we're not fighting like decades of a particular way of doing something. And so we try something, and if it doesn't work out, our method isn't good, no problem. We'll try something new. It's not a big deal. And it, a, but the problem is that, that, that a disadvantage is that almost everything that we do, almost everything that we do needs to be built from the ground up. We're sort of starting from scratch in everything that we do. And so... When there's so much to do, everything can feel important at any given point. So let me give you an example, just kind of what these last four months have looked like, right? So one thing that I've been doing is kind of thinking through what we call GCMs and Soul Cares, which, which is basically our smaller groups, our smaller communities here at Seven Mile Road. 
So I'm thinking through how can I best train our leaders and how can I help to ensure that our groups are functioning well and healthy. And we would say that's important, right? Good small groups are important. That's a key to a healthy church. But then I've been thinking about mission, right? Because we don't want to be a church that's just about ourselves and kind of insular. We want to be loving and serving and engaging our community with the gospel. We want to be doing that. And so we've done things like workshops and initiatives to kind of help us move in that direction. And we would say that's important, right? That's one of the keys to a healthy church. But then there's Sunday school and creating a new website and planning for membership and reviewing the bylaws and thinking about missional giving. And there's the welcome team or writing blogs, which a whopping four of you probably read at any given point. But all of these things, all of them are important. They're keys to being a healthy church. Now, if I were to come down and just kind of sit down with each of you and just ask you, you know, what do you think I should be concentrating on? What do you think is most important for me to be focusing on as a pastor? I would think that we would get a bunch of different answers, right? I mean, some of you would say Sunday school. You would say we need to train our children in God's word and kind of lead them up in that way. And I would say, I agree. Sunday school is important. And then others would say, no, it's, it's mission. We need to be a church that's on mission, loving and serving and, and engaging our communities. And I would say, I agree. Mission is important. And somebody else would probably say, you know what? No, no, it's not any of that. It's, it's the website. The website is important because a lot of people come to know about some of our road and check us out through the website. And so we need to make it attractive and we need to make it informative. And I would say, I agree. The website is important. But the question is, what is it really? What is it really, right? What is the most important thing for a pastor to be focusing on in order to lead his church well? I'm grateful that the passage that we're looking at this morning is actually asking that same question. When there's so much to do, what should I be focusing on? When there's so much to do, what should I be focusing on? So if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we've been kind of uh, preaching through 1 Timothy together, right? So if you've been here, you sort of know the, uh, the background to this letter as well. So there's a seasoned pastor named Paul who's writing a personal letter to a person named Timothy. And he's a young and new pastor of a church in a city called Ephesus. Now, Paul and Timothy are buddies, right? Paul was sort of a mentor to Timothy, kind of showing him the ropes of what it looks like to be a pastor. And this church in Ephesus is actually a church that Paul helped to start. He planted that church some years ago. But the story of this church is an interesting one, right? So we read in the scriptures that Ephesus, this church in Ephesus, was a thriving, healthy church at one point. I mean, it was being used to transform this city of Ephesus. People who were once worshiping idols and stone images were now having their lives transformed and worshiping Jesus instead. It was a healthy church. But somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way, uh, something took a wrong turn. And now this church was a mess. I mean, everything that could possibly grow, go wrong with this church in Ephesus went wrong. And so Paul sends Timothy, Pastor Timothy, to sort of go into Ephesus and clean up the mess. Now, if you're Timothy and you're new to being a pastor, the question you're probably asking yourself is, where do I begin? Right? Where do I begin? Where, what do I need to be focusing on? What will my 
Monday through Saturday look like? I mean, maybe I talk to the angry men who are constantly fighting each other and are in dispute, like it says in chapter 2. Or maybe I need to find qualified people to serve as elders and deacons so that we can kind of revive the leadership at this church, as it says in chapter 3. Or maybe I need to figure out some kind of support plan to help uh, these widows who are being neglected and not being taken care of, like it says in chapter 5. Or maybe, maybe I need to be talking to these rich people at the church who are not being generous with their money, but are kind of hoarding up their wealth for themselves, like it says in chapter 6. Question is, what is it? I mean, what does Timothy focus on? What does he center his ministry around? And that's when a mailman knocks at his door and he drops off this letter. And so he gets this letter from, from the mailman. He looks at it and it says that it's written from Paul. And so he rips it open because he's been in Ephesus right now and he's confused trying to figure out what he should be doing. So he opens it up and he begins reading this letter. And when he does, Paul's answer is pretty clear. Paul says, Timothy, do you want to know how to serve Jesus in Ephesus? Do you want to know? Serving Jesus requires right living and right teaching. Serving Jesus requires right living and right teaching. Simple as that. Paul says, listen, I know that there are a million things for you to be doing in Ephesus, but nothing, nothing is more important than right living and right teaching. Serving Jesus requires right living and right teaching. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to take some time to kind of think through what that means. What does right living and right teaching mean, and why is it so important? Let's, before we do that, let's pray together. Father, as I consider what is being done here this morning, as we look to your word, as your word is being preached, as we are listening to your word, we remember that all of this, all of this is utterly dependent on you. You are the one that inspired the scriptures. You are the one that is able to open up our ears to be able to hear the scriptures. You are the one that works through the preacher to preach the scriptures. All of this is about you. And what's wonderful is that the same God who is active in all of these things knows us personally. So you know what we need to hear this morning. You know what we don't need to hear this morning. So I'm praying that you would take what is being preached this morning, apply it to those who need to hear certain things, block out the things that people don't need to hear, but let all of what we say this morning be faithful to your word. We ask this and we seek your help in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we get started, I want to just address you as the listener here this morning. And so as you're hearing through this passage this morning, you might be thinking, you know what, this passage sort of sounds a lot like it's being written specifically to a pastor. And that's because it's being specifically written to a pastor, right? It's being written to first, I mean to Timothy. In fact, everything that has been written in First Timothy is being specifically written to a pastor. But as we've been going through this letter for the past few months, we've seen that even the things that are being written to Timothy specifically are still applicable to Christians universally, right? And so what that means is that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but you're not a pastor, don't tune out, 
right? This passage still applies to you. This is good for us to hear together as a congregation. Secondly, you might be here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, right? You might be here this morning and maybe you're just exploring Christianity or maybe you're here because a friend invited you. And so you're saying, you know, I don't really think that this passage applies to me because I'm not trying to serve Jesus. I'm not even a Christian. And I would say, you know, maybe that's true. Uh, But I want to encourage you also to not tune out because this passage paints a great picture of who Jesus is and what he has done and what it looks like to live the Christian life. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, don't tune out. I would love for you to catch a vision of all of those things, of Jesus and the Christian life as well. So with that in mind, let's let's actually begin uh, by looking at verse 11. So Paul says in verse 11, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. So let's stop right there, right? So obviously we know that we're sort of picking up in the middle of a thought right here. And so before Paul gets into what right living and right teaching look like, he wants to kind of write out and point us back to everything that he has said so far. So the question is, what is this referring to, right? Command and teach what? So again, we need to remember that this is a letter being written to Timothy to sort of help him sort out the mess that's going on in Ephesus. So what he's been doing is, paragraph by paragraph, he's been giving instructions to Timothy as to what he should be doing, sort of like a a task list of the things that he needs to complete. So he says things like, teach your people to pray. Teach your people to pray. Or, Or he says, teach your people the role of men and women in the church. Or he says, teach the church what it looks like to choose good elders and deacons. And so he goes through a list of things that Timothy should be focusing on while at Ephesus. But what's interesting in this verse is that Paul doesn't just say teach. He actually says also command. And that's an interesting word choice. You see, uh, the New Testament of the Bible was actually written in Greek, right? And the Greek word that's being used here for devote, it actually is a military word. It's a word that like a superior officer would use to kind of command the people that are under him. And so the word that's being used here could actually be translated charge as well. Command these things or charge these things. You see, Paul is so concerned with what's happening at Ephesus that he tells Timothy, command these things. You've got to charge these things. These aren't just recommendations, good ideas that he should follow. These are commands, and it's for the good of the church. It's like, for example, if I saw my daughter Sarah, right? And Sarah was out in the middle of the street, kind of playing in the middle of the street. And I saw a car coming towards her, right? I wouldn't just go out there and say, hey, would you mind, would it be okay if you came back to the sidewalk and just played? I know you're having a lot of fun out on the street, but would you mind just coming back on to the sidewalk? Because I see this car coming, and I'm a little afraid that it's going to run you over. Uh, Would that be okay? Would you come back to the street? Uh, b- but it's up to you. Whatever you want, you, you go ahead and make a decision, right? That would be ridiculous for me as a parent to do. That would be dumb. I wouldn't actually be a good parent if I did that. Instead, I would command her. I would command her to get back on the sidewalk, off of the street, because it's ultimately for her good, even if she doesn't understand it. And Paul is saying the same thing. He says, command and charge these things to the people in Ephesus because it's for their good, even if they don't understand it. But let's take a moment right now just to kind of consider what we're saying. 
right? Imagine if you're Timothy, young, brand new pastor Timothy, and you just read that sentence on that letter. Command and charge these things. If you're Timothy, you may begin to feel some sort of uh, a bunch of knots in your stomach, right? You're getting real anxious. Because when Timothy would read, command and teach these things, he's probably thinking, you want me to do what? You want me to command these people? But everyone here, everyone here is older than I am. I mean, why in the world would they possibly want to listen to me? They're just going to write me off. And you know, when I think about what Timothy may be feeling as he's reading that sentence, I want to say, I get that. I get that, Timothy. I understand why you would be feeling what you're feeling. You see, by God's grace, Seven Mile Road is not Ephesus, okay? We're not Ephesus. So I'm not here fighting false teachers, or I'm not here trying to clean up what is a messy church by God's grace. But even still, I know how intimidating it can be to try to instruct or to lead those who are older than me. I know what that could feel like. I mean, there are folks who are here that are much smarter than I am. There are folks who are here that are much more accomplished than I will ever be. I mean, there are those who are here that have more life experiences than I do. And I know that. I've realized that. So I totally get why Timothy would feel, you know, why would they listen to me? What reason do they have to listen to me? And maybe you're sitting here this morning, and maybe you get it too. Maybe you understand why Timothy may be feeling the way that he's feeling. You know, maybe it's not even your age. Maybe it's your past, right? I mean, maybe you're a Christian now, but your friends and your family are constantly reminding you of who you once were and what you once did. And they say, you know, isn't that so-and-so who used to uh, do such and such and say this and that? I mean, what reason do I have to listen to anything that that person has to say? And the thing is, it's not even like you're claiming to be perfect, but something about your life causes people to dismiss you. That can be hard. That can be really hard. And so Paul knows how hard that can be. And so he responds to this feeling that Timothy may be having by saying, in verse 12, let no one despise you. Let no one despise you. But it's interesting to see what follows that encouragement as well. You see, Timothy doesn't say, let no one despise you because it doesn't matter what people think. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, it doesn't matter what people think. Or he doesn't even say, you know what? Just tell them to love you for who you really are. He doesn't say that either. Or he doesn't even say, forget them. I mean, who are they to judge you? He doesn't say any of those things. Instead, what he says actually brings us to our first point for this morning. Paul says, Timothy, do you want to know how to serve Jesus in Ephesus? Serving Jesus requires right living. Serving Jesus requires right living. Verse 12 says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In other words, what Paul's saying here is, listen, Timothy, Live with such godly character that your life would be an example even to your harshest critic. Right? Even if they dismiss you for your age, live in such a way that they can't ignore your character. 
And so what Paul begins to do in verse 12 is he starts to spell out what right living looks like. And so he breaks it down into five major areas, right? Into speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And it's actually a great list because it's, it's so comprehensive. And so P- Paul begins this list with just the things that are kind of observable about our life, like our speech and our conduct. So he says speech, and, and speech kind of refers to like our everyday conversations. He's saying, you know, what kind of things come out of your mouth in the everyday? What, are your, what is your mouth filled with? What's your speech filled with? He's saying, you know, are you building people up through your words or are you breaking people down through the things that you say? And then he says, how about your conduct, right? How do you live your life? I mean, like, what are you like at home? Or what are you like at the restaurant? Or what are you like at work? Or what do your neighbors think about you when they see your life? What do people see when they look at you? Or better yet, how do you live your life when no one's looking? What is your life like? Paul says... Living right means setting an example in speech and in conduct. And you see, while speech and conduct are both observable things, Paul goes on to list things that can't be seen with the human eye, right? Like love and faith and purity. Because Paul's saying it's not just what people think about you by what they see that matters, it's also who you are genuinely. You see, those who want to serve Jesus, they're not called to be pretenders or fakes or hypocrites. Instead, what you see on the outside should be a good reflection of what's true on the inside. An author named Brennan Manning once said, the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You see, Brennan Manning and Paul are saying the same thing this morning. They're saying the way that you and I, if you're a Christian here this morning, the way that we live our lives has implication in what people believe. The way you and I live our lives has implications on how they see God and view him. And so Paul is saying, make sure you work hard. Work hard to be genuine. That your speech and your conduct are rooted in love and in faith and in purity. And so Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, I know, I know that you have so much to accomplish, so much to do in Ephesus. But the first thing that I want you to focus on is being an example through your life. Live in such a way that people are compelled to submit to your leadership. And here's the thing, right? That's not even just applicable to Timothy. It's also true for us. There might be 50 reasons why someone may dismiss what you have to say. 50 reasons why someone may dismiss what you have to say. What Paul's saying this morning is, don't let your life be one of them. Serving Jesus requires right living. But here's the thing. It's not just right living that matters. Paul goes on to say, serving Jesus also requires right teaching. And that's our second point for this morning, right? So let's read verses 13 and 14 together. It says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. You see, though Paul has been focusing so, so far on what Timothy's life should look like, 
he now focuses on the content of his ministry. And he's saying, listen, Timothy, your entire ministry, your entire ministry needs to be centered on God's word, the scripture. You need to read it. You need to exhort it, which is another word for preaching. You need to teach it. He's saying, even if everything else falls apart, even if your website is terrible, I mean, even if your music sounds like country music, just horrible, right? He's saying, no matter what, I'm sorry, but no matter what, <clears throat> the focus of your ministry should be God's word. That's important for Timothy to remember, and that's actually important for us to remember. Because you see, what people in this world or even in this room need is not just more of us or more of our opinions, but more of God. And the way that we get God, the way that we get a chance to understand who he is and what he has done is through the scripture, through God's word. And so Paul says, devote yourself. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. I actually want to take a moment just to kind of note why it's important that Paul even uses the word devote here. Now, I'm not a grammar nerd by any sense of the word, right? I'm not. But I did read a book by someone who is a grammar nerd, and so it was helpful to me. And what I learned was, what, uh, was something that was interesting. What I learned is that the Greek word that's being used here for devote is actually in the present active imperative tense. <laughs> in the present active imperative tense. Aren't, isn't that exciting? That is exciting. We should be excited because that's awesome. Because do you know why? And I didn't know why either. But I found out that when a word is in the present active imperative tense, it means that this is a verb or a word that is an action that's not just supposed to happen today or tomorrow or for the immediate future. It's meant to be a continual way of life, a lifestyle. And so what Paul's saying is that you're not supposed to just focus on God's word until things get better at Ephesus, and then we'll move on to other things. He's saying, this is it. This is your entire ministry. Your entire devotion, the center of your life and ministry, needs to be God's word forever. You see, for Timothy and for us, there's no plan B. We don't move on to bigger and better things once we have preached God's word. God's word is all that we have. In fact, verse 14 shows us that this has actually been the plan ever since the beginning of Timothy's ministry. Verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This actually takes us back to Timothy's ordination, the day when he became a pastor. And Paul says, listen, don't forget what happened on that day, right? The elders laid their hands on you, and they began to pray for you, and they charged you, that you should always be committed to God's word. And so God's word was supposed to be the focal point of your ministry from day one. And so, Timothy's saying, and so Paul's saying, Timothy, listen, don't forget what happened on that day. And don't you dare neglect God's word. In fact, when I read this verse, it kind of took me back just four months ago when I stood up here on the stage and I was being commissioned to be a pastor here at this church. And one of the clearest memories that I had of that day was when a Bible was placed in my hand and I had men praying over me, asking God that I would make 
the focal point of my life and my ministry, God's word, that I would be devoted to it for the rest of my life. And if we were to take a moment and kind of just consider what we're saying, we would say, that makes absolute sense. That makes absolute sense. For example, when you visit a doctor, right, whether you know it or not, you're hoping that his or her life is devoted to medicine, right? You're hoping that their life is devoted to medicine, that growing in medicine is a lifestyle for him. Hopefully, they're not just banking on what they learned 30 years ago, but that they're constantly reading journals and talking to other doctors and going to conferences. Because this is why. Because it wouldn't provide you with any comfort if you went to the doctor's office and you were sitting in that room and the doctor walks in and sits down and that doctor is just a nice person. And they just ask you all sorts of questions about what you did over the weekend and how you're doing and all that different stuff. But they had no clue how to help you. It wouldn't offer you any comfort. Because what you and I need isn't just a doctor who's a good person. We need someone who can show us the truth about our sickness. That's what we need. And the truth is, it's no different when it comes to a pastor either. You see, what you need isn't just a pastor who's a good person, just a nice guy. What you need is someone whose life and teaching point you to truth. And actually, that's true of all of us. Seven Mile Road, we're not just called to be nice people, good people. We're called to point others to the truth that has changed and transformed our very own lives. That's the call in our lives. That through our life and through our words, that we would be preaching truth of the gospel. And that doing so, lives would be transformed. And so what Paul is saying here this morning is that Serving Jesus doesn't just require right living, it also requires right teaching. And so Paul sort of wraps up this thought in verse 15. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Just a quick thought on this verse. See, what Paul's saying here is that right living and right teaching requires work. And so he's saying, so practice these things, right? Immerse yourself in them. To me, it sort of paints the picture of what an athlete looks like who's devoted to his sport. I had an opportunity to read just an article on ESPN recently looking back to what Jordan's practice routine used to look like. And what I read was that he would take over 100 free throws every single day. It said that he would be working out in the gym, lifting weights, doing cardio for three hours each day. That he would be in the back room watching film of previous games looking forward to the next team that he's going to play against, watching film, trying to figure out what went well, what didn't go well, every single day. That even in the off-season, while all the other players are vacationing and vegging out at home, he would still be playing basketball four to five hours every day. But here's the thing, right? So no one hears that and says, I would have never guessed that, right? That's a shock to me. I would never think that he was such a harder worker. You see... We don't feel that way because Jordan's game was evidence of the fact that he practiced, that he was immersed in basketball both on the court and off the court. And what Paul's saying to us this morning is essentially the same thing. He's saying right living and right teaching takes work. It doesn't just happen automatically out of the blue. It takes intentionality and commitment. The question is, what does that even look like, right? What does that even look like for you and me? 
I'll give you one example. So at Seven Mile Road, we have something called soul care groups, right? I mentioned it before. It's, it's these smaller groups where men meet with men and women uh, meet with women, and we kind of talk through life together. And so as we gather, we'll talk through all sorts of things. We'll celebrate uh, what's been going well. We'll discuss what's been difficult about our lives. We'll meet together and we'll confess sins. We'll meet together and we'll look to Jesus together. And the truth is, it's hard. Meeting for soul care is hard because it requires vulnerability. It requires honesty. It requires time. Some of my soul care groups meet at 10 o'clock at night where we're gathering and talking with each other. It requires work. And the truth is that there are times where I'd rather not. But what Paul is saying here is that I need to because right living requires work. And Paul says when you put in the work, when you practice and immerse yourself in these things, your progress will be evident to others. You see, he's not even just saying, he's not saying that you do these things so that other people can see it. He's not saying that. He's saying when you do do these things, other people can't help but see your progress. You know, maybe you're hearing all of this this morning and saying, this sounds like a lot. It really does. It just sounds like a bunch of stuff. I mean, I don't even get what's the point, right? I mean, why does all of this even matter? I think that's a great point. And I think Paul, again, anticipates maybe that same question that we may be feeling this morning. And so he answers it in verse 16. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul's saying, the reason why you should care about right living and right teaching is because in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, if you're a Christian sitting here this morning, you might be hearing this and saying, uh, this doesn't really sound right, right? It sort of sounds off. Because how can anyone save themselves or save anyone else? Or how can our life and teaching lead us to salvation? And if you're feeling that tension, I'm glad. Because <clears throat> if you're at all familiar with Paul and his other writings, it seems like what he says does sound a little different than what's going on here. Like, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Or in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is completely clear in both of these verses that a person isn't saved by what they do. We need to hear that, right? That's what all the other religions in the world, all the other philosophies teach, is that a person is saved by what they do. You have to be good enough to be saved. But what the Bible teaches is not that. The Bible says we're not good enough to save ourselves. Instead, what allows us to be saved is when we trust in Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. But because we are sinners, we need a savior, and we find that in him. And that's just two examples in the scriptures. So the question is, what's going on here, right? What's going on in verse 16? We find out when we read this closer that what Paul is teaching here actually doesn't contradict anything that he has said in any other portion of scripture. We realize that Paul is saying two things here. The first thing he's saying is persist 
persist in right living and right teaching. Because when we do, it serves as proof that we are truly saved. And I need, I need us to hear that correctly, right? Paul is not saying perseverance is what saves you, that if you're good enough for long enough, that God will save you. That would actually go against everything the scripture has said. Perseverance isn't the cause of your salvation. It's the evidence of your salvation. When God saves you, he will help you to persevere till the end. And the second thing that Paul is saying here is that even though it is God who ultimately saves anyone, the means through which he saves people is his word. God is the one that saves everyone. And yet the means through which he saves people is his word. Here from Romans chapter 10. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What a wonderful and necessary reminder for us to hear this morning. Salvation requires faith. And faith requires hearing truth. And hearing truth requires preaching. And preaching requires a preacher. And so if we're sitting here this morning, and there are people in our lives, maybe it's family in our lives that don't believe in Jesus. Maybe there are friends or neighbors or coworkers. Maybe someone at Starbucks that you've been talking to, whatever. If there are people in our lives that don't know Jesus, what it requires us is to share through our life and through our words the gospel. You see, God has been graciously saving people for centuries. And the means of salvation has almost always been God's people pre preaching God's truth. And we're included in that. We're called to preach the truth through our lives and through our words. And so Paul says, persist in right living and right teaching. So as we get ready to close this morning, I know you might be hearing this and you might be saying, you know, all of this just sounds real heavy. Maybe you're listening and this just sounds like a bunch of do's and don'ts. Just a bunch of rules that you need to be following in order to be a Christian. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we would probably say that even as we're looking through this passage, we know that we have already failed to do so much of what this passage has said. I mean, we haven't lived right. Our lives are messy. I know how messy my own life is. We haven't always believed or taught right things. If I were to be honest, there are times when I prefer the lie instead of the truth. I know that I failed in so many of these things. And so if serving Jesus requires right living and right teaching, the question is, where does that leave us? I think where it does lead us is desperately in need of Jesus. And that's why I'm grateful that before Jesus wrote chapter 4, I'm sorry, before Paul wrote chapter 4, he wrote chapter 1. Because in it, we can find our hope. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the foremost. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world to save those who have lived right and have taught right. Instead, he came into the world to save sinners, the greatest of sinners. And so when our life and our teaching hasn't been right, our only hope is found in the cross, where the one who lived a perfect life and from whose mouth was taught perfect teaching died for those who would fail in both of those areas. Where we have failed, Jesus has been perfect. And that's our only hope. And so as we cling to that hope, as we cling to the cross this morning, we remember that there is nothing more important in our life than to focus on serving Jesus by living right and teaching right. Let's pray together this morning. Father, even as we gather this morning, we're grateful that we even have lives to live. The scripture teaches us that we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God, being full of mercy and grace, brought us to life. And the lives that we live right now are not our own. We belong to you. We have been bought at a price. We're grateful that even as we gather this morning, that we do have truth to share. Our lives are evidence of that truth because our lives have been transformed by that truth, not because we did something to earn it. We know how sinful we've been. We know how sinful we are right now, how we still struggle. And yet we have a great story to share. The great story of who Jesus is and what he has done and how believing in that truth has transformed our lives. Lord, as we gather this morning, it is a privilege for us to be able to serve you. We get to serve the one who has served us. And we want to serve, as your scripture says, by right living and right teaching. And we know that because of our sin, we are absolutely in need of your grace to be able to do that. God, we don't want to just find a treasure and keep it to ourselves and not tell the rest of the world. The world is in need of what we have found. We are in need of what we, are, what we have found. And so we want to be generous in the way that we share our lives and the truth with those who are around us. But we need your grace to do so. There are many reasons why people would dismiss us. God, we're not claiming to be perfect. Instead, we're trying to point people to the one who is perfect. And so I'm praying that you would give us what we need to be able to do that. Give us in our hearts such a yearning for you and such a yearning for those who are in this world that we would desire to serve you by living right and teaching right. That's our cry. That's our desire this morning. Would you hear us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.